Welcome to Your Unconscious is Showing, a no BS podcast platform created to discuss the underlying truths beneath our daily lives and what and who we think we are. Today's episode features my first groundbreaking guest, and we're talking big things. We discuss questions such as how the unconscious shows up in suicidality, suicidality recovery, and in others' beliefs about suicidality and their ability to help. I ask my guest, who is a world-renowned speaker, author, filmmaker, and mental health advocate, to discuss how her unconscious showed up for her during her difficult past and in her present recovery and career. If you feel like your unconscious is making you feel suicidal, this episode may help you. If you have someone in your life that is feeling suicidal and you want to understand what might be going on in their mind, this episode may help you. Don't forget to share this episode if it does help you in any way by taking a screenshot and sharing it on social media, tagging both your unconscious is showing and the period truth period doctor. And please leave us a review on our Apple podcast platform after you listen. The more people who hear these truth messages, the more the world is getting better a little at a time. Enjoy. Please contact an emergency line if you are feeling suicidal. You are not alone. We believe in you. Welcome to episode 10 of Your Unconscious is Showing. My name is Dr. Courtney Tracy. I am known on social media as The Truth Doctor. And today I have my very first guest on my podcast. Her name is Jazz Thornton. She is a New Zealand mental health icon and advocate, co-founder of Voices of Hope, star of the Girl of the of the Girl on the Bridge film, public speaker, director, and author of Stop Surviving, Start Fighting. Thank you so much for being here today, Jazz. Thank you so much for having me. There have been, you know, so many people in the TikTok community where I primarily have found my following at this point, my mental health following, people around the world who are struggling with mental health and substance use and adolescent pain and adult pain. Um, I've found that there are so many other advocates out there in the world and I'm able to connect with them through this platform. And upon seeing everything that you've done in your life, in the years that you've been in your mental health recovery, I am amazed by your strength, really, you know, and the strength that goes along with the fight that you've accomplished in your own life and the fight that you want other people to engage in for their own lives as well. So thank you so much. And it really is an honor to have you on here today. Oh, thank you. I'm very excited to be able to speak with you. Thank you. So this podcast is about the unconscious. It is about what goes on in our heads that other people can never understand and that a lot of the times we don't understand. And so I wanted to ask you with everything that you've done in your life and you know brought your past into it, how did how do you feel like your unconscious was showing up for you in your past and when you were struggling? Um, I think that, you know, looking back kind of hindsight is a great thing, right? Um, and when I was kind of going through my own journey um, and looking at where I am now, there were many times where, um, you know, I would be responding in certain ways like, Uh, example I would be kind of living in this constant state of crisis and I just assumed that 
this constant state of crisis was my identity and this is just how I responded and that was the issue. Um, and what I didn't realize was that what my mind was actually trying to tell me was that I was feeling abandoned, that I was feeling alone, that I was feeling like I wasn't worth it and it was coming out in this kind of crisis response. Um, and then as I, I guess I began advocating, um, there was quite a big uh, theme throughout the Girl on the Bridge film when they were following me for two and a half years, which was trying to understand the, the concept of us as humans not being able to be the saviors of people. Um, that is not our job to save people and our job is to um, walk alongside them, to love them, to you know get them help, do all those things, but we can't physically save them. And I think that was an, a massive thing as well um, that my mind was trying to teach me throughout those those few years. Absolutely, yeah. So it's not, you know, so I'm a licensed therapist. So what I hear when, when I hear you saying that is a question that came up for me was, do you feel like there was more being revealed from your unconscious throughout the process of already being a mental health advocate? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Um, and a lot of it, funnily enough, I didn't notice was happening until I watched the film for the first time. So they didn't let me see anything. I was never allowed to look over any footage um, for about three years. And then I watched it and I thought the film was going to be something completely different. The messaging was going to be completely different. And then when I watched it and I realized that the process I had been going on was this one about, um, you know, realizing that I couldn't have saved my friend Jess who took her life in 2015 and, and trying to work out the guilt of that and the pain of that and trying to create a different outcome of that when I thought in reality I was just trying to tell her story. Um, but there was a whole other process that was going on about me coming to the realization that, oh, not only can I not save the thousands of people that are messaging me um, wanting, you know, wanting help and thinking I can save them, I also couldn't have saved her. Um, and so, yeah, that was, it was surprising to me to watch the film for the first time and go, oh, that was what was happening unconsciously over the last three years. Right, absolutely. The unconscious can definitely do that. You can think that you have understand, like, a clear understanding of what it is that's going on in your own mind only to look back on your life or look in the moment or think to the future and what you're doing and think, wow, there's so much more there. You can't ever really fully uncover everything that's there because it's so deep. It starts from the moment that you're born. And I know you've shared a lot of your stories about you know the things that you've been through, what led you to where you're at today. And, and I don't wanna go into those things. What I want to ask instead is, what is your relationship with your unconscious today? You know, it's separate from, you know, not, not necessarily having an awareness of it from when you were a child or in your past, you know, not that consciousness of, this is what's been going on in my mind. But today, what is your relationship with your unconscious and how does it relate to what you're doing in your life? I think that, um, oh, to be honest, that relationship with my unconscious is still something that I am discovering every day as I think we all are. Um, I think what I've come to understand now is that often uh, my responses or processes or things that I'm going through specifically in advocacy, you know, there's a lot um, of being on the front line and kind of not just on social media, but we, you know, we've literally physically talked people off bridges and we've addressed world leaders at the UN General Assembly and we've really been on the front line of this fight. And 
now kind of understanding the moments where I might be responding in a way that's not helpful. Um, and I listen to that now and I realize, oh, maybe it's not just this response, but maybe my unconscious is trying to tell me, hey, Jazz, slow down or hey, Jazz, you're getting too involved in this. Remember, this doesn't fall on your shoulders or um, you're putting on your savior cap again. And I think um, I've begun to listen to it a lot more and also to be inquisitive about why am I responding like this and what is this trying to tell me? Um, but it's definitely a continuous learning thing because I think all of us as humans um, sometimes like to ignore the unconscious right. <laughs> and just right. pretend like we're doing everything right. <laughs> um, but I think I'm beginning to, to understand and see that a lot more. Absolutely. I love that you mentioned the savior cap. You know, so many mental health advocates, therapists, psychologists, doctors, best friends, family members, any human being can wear the savior cap. And because we want to help. And we think, you know, I just came out with a video that says you can't love someone into loving themselves. And it's so true, but we want to so deeply heal the people that we love or the people that we're advocating for, the people sitting in my therapy office with me or the people that you're talking off of a bridge we want to be the savior and the solution and so what comes up for you when you know have you reconciled more so now versus in the past from the fact that that we can't really dive into other people's unconscious we can sort of assume what is going on there but we need them to be willing to open up before we can even attempt to save them in any way yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that for me, probably about two years ago, I came to the realization that, um, you know, through a lot of my advocacy work, I had been putting on the savior cap and doing all of that. But that was because I also believed in my own story that it had been people that had saved me. Um, you know, I've talked about the police officer who saved my life, the the doctor that I'm now very good friends with, um, who got me admitted to the psych ward and, and things like that. I always was kind of crediting, um, which I 100% still do credit these people, but I began to realize that ultimately these people enabled me to learn how to fight myself. So I had been journeying this mental health journey for nine years and people had been saying and doing similar things for so long, but what made the most significant change wasn't necessarily someone else. Um, while that significantly helped, it was me learning how to fight and so taking that into my advocacy and going i know that i can't save you but i think that's more empowering for you to know you can save yourself like you have the ability to turn this around and i will be here to help you do that but you got to make the decision exactly that's so important i think you know a lot of my listeners are young females between the ages of 18 and 34 that struggle with some type of mental health issue or they have a family member or a loved one that's struggling with mental health, or they are soon to be therapists and they wanna know more about the mind. So my whole audience is wanting to know about consciousness and, and, and the subconscious, the unconscious. And I think that it's so important that we realize that, that there will be people that can help us. One, there will be people that can help us, but we have to allow them to help us. And two, if we're not helping ourselves, then they can't really help us. You know, we have to not only open up the door for help, but we also have to be willing to let people walk through the door and us walk out of the door at the same time. 
One of the biggest things that I um, learned in regards to, you know, me being the person who could uh, activate change was actually going into a therapist's office for, for so many years. I would go in with kind of the mindset, my illness is my identity, therefore it will never change. And also you're just paid to care. Probably something that you hear time and time again, right? The biggest misconception, you're paid to care, you don't actually care, but it meant that for like nine years I was going into therapy and I wasn't taking in anything they were saying because I was like, this is just who I am. You don't know anything. But when I started to go in with the mindset that my illness is not my identity, therefore, you know, this person who has studied for many years um, might know what they're talking about. And I might start to take on things that they're saying, cause maybe it might help. Um, and it, honestly, I wish that I had done that nine years earlier. Cause I probably would have been saved from that nine years of crisis. Had I learned how to engage with people like a therapist. Absolutely. And one of the first things that, that at least I try to work with and that a lot of the therapists that are in, you know, I own a treatment center and all of them, I ask them this, What's your perspective on the symptoms of a human being? Because the human being themselves, a lot of the times, you know, I have mental health issues. Most people have some type of mental health issue and we identify with the surface level symptoms. And just like you said, we feel like because we identify with those surface level symptoms, that is our identity. And we don't realize that our subconscious has absorbed everything we've ever been through in our lives, created a story about it, made us a character in this very difficult film that we feel like we're forced to watch and we forget that we can dive deep in and that we're not our symptoms we have experienced the causes of our symptoms and therefore we can look at the causes you know reveal what those symptoms are and then choose differently in the future protect ourselves and learn about what's gone on in our lives and how that's made us who we are today in a way that we can work with it, not in a way that's debilitating. Mm, absolutely. That's something that I have significantly had to learn mm-hmm. over my journey and now try to teach, you know, other people as you do both online and, and face-to-face is so important. So important. Well, the main thing that you work on in, in all of the things that you have going on is, is reducing the stigma of mental health and reducing the frequency of suicide. And I know you've been focusing on New Zealand primarily, but it's gone global. You know, your premiere has been released worldwide. People are, are hearing your message and watching your films and seeing your videos and hearing your voice all over. And suicide has increased so significantly. You know, people think in my profession, a lot of the times it will be, oh, well, these interventions work or this program works or this community um, of people, if we surround them, if we surround this person, then it's going to help. And the thing is, the suicide rates have increased so much in so many countries. And I feel like we're just now, especially with this global pandemic, we're getting to a point where we're saying, wait, we still have all of these mental health resources. Why is it? Why is suicide increasing? Why is mental health issues increasing? Substance use increasing? You know, and and a part of it that's missing is education. You know, people, of course, there's resources missing and there's the stigma that prevents people from going to get help. But it's also that people even know what's going on with them enough to realize that, again, it's not their identity. It's something that can be worked and something that can be managed. And so from your either your personal perspective or your professional perspective of where you're at today, how do you feel like the unconscious shows up in in suicidality, the symptoms of the feelings of? Um, yeah, of, of suicidality. 
I think that, um, you know, first of all, I have had the honor over the last kind of three years of working globally in this area. So I've um, worked with advocates and organizations around 15 countries, traveled um, and realized very quickly that this issue was far greater than we realize. Um, there are things happening overseas that um, we don't even know about and we don't talk about. It was actually, I was supposed to be shooting a new show on it this year, traveling to all 15 countries, but COVID. Um, but I met a guy in Sierra Leone um, and he was talking about how over there, if you are struggling with mental health or suicidal tendencies and, and beliefs, one of the ways that they deal with it is that they shackle you to concrete slabs. And that is happening everywhere, right? So I'm I, I hear a lot of this kind of frontline stuff and the reality of what's happening globally and also understanding that, um, I don't know if you know this, but the amount that the world leaders invest globally into mental health is less than the budget of one Avengers movie. Wow. <laughs> so first of all, people who are suicidal are kind of under this perception um, that they are kind of a waste of space or they're not important. Um, and this hasn't been labeled as a pandemic when I think it should be considering in the first kind of few weeks of COVID there was I believe I believe it was 16% more people that died by suicide than COVID and one of them was a pandemic and one of them wasn't so when it comes to actually you know the the feelings of being suicidal for me um, I, I struggle with that for so many years and often it was around um, you know wholeheartedly believing that the world was better off without you in it um, and you know you could look at friends and family around you and you know you'd be like oh they'll, they'll be sad for a day or a week and then they'll get over it and I think that what people who haven't been suicidal need to understand is that those who are struggling with these thoughts they believe these statements as fact they believe that the world is better off without them as a fact and so um, you know being a burden being unlovable those kinds of things it's something that you ruminate on 24 7 um, and it's kind of constantly on your mind but beginning to to realize that while this person believes this to be fact that's where it's our job now as society and friends and family to combat that as much as we can to realize for them to realize that this is simply just an internal reality not an external fact um but yeah i think that there are so many things that happen unconsciously when you're suicidal um and that in those moments there is opportunity for change um, but we just have to know how to do that and globally as well, ensuring right. that we're prioritizing that so that they know that it's worth getting that help. Completely. This, you know, suicidality is scary to a lot of people. A lot of people, and that's unconscious. It's like we, we one, a lot of people feel like they understand it and they don't. And there's an unconscious reason to, to really not want to dive deeper. And it's fear. It's fear of, can I? Will I ever feel like this? Will my loved ones ever feel like this? It's the fear of the unknown, the fear of something that's so scary and so dangerous and so permanent that people really want to push it away, which contributes to the stigma, contributes to the lack of resources and contributes to a really damaging way of treating it in so many different countries, so many different families. You know, the teenagers that I work with, the young adults that use high levels of substances to numb themselves without fear of overdose it's it's this it's knowing you know and then the families that say well 
they could stop using if they wanted to, as an example, or they could get better if they wanted to. And it's just like you said, where they don't understand that just as much as they believe that that's a fact, their loved one believes that it's a fact that that's not possible. And it's this contradictory unconscious and conscious belief system compiling, you know, going against each other without a moment to say, wait, perhaps this person really feels just like you said, the world would be better off without them. And I should take a moment to try to understand with empathy and connection. You can start at sympathy if you need to, if you really don't really understand and taking that moment to, to accept that this is real, to accept that this really happens and people really feel this way. I also think it's important to point out that um, I think for, for many years that I was suicidal, I would use the term, and I don't know if this, it's not a correct term, but casually suicidal in the way that I don't think I, maybe a couple of times, but other than that, I didn't necessarily want to die. Mm. I just didn't want to keep living like this. And therefore that was my only way out. Um, and I think when people think of people that are suicidal, they're like, well, that's so selfish. Why would you do that? And that creates a lot of the fear because they don't want to be alive, but no, they just, if they could, they would wake up and be a completely different person. Um, but that's not the case. And they're having to wake up like this every single day. And that's really hard. And so I think realizing that difference as well is, is really important and enables us to go, okay, that means that there are things that we can do to help because it's these, you know, these things that they believe can't change, not necessarily the want to die. Completely. That's so, so true. I think and people look at it like either people want to live or they don't want to live, you know, and it's that entire, it's like, well, first of all, you, it's important to ask why, you know, so many people just go straight to judgment. They just go straight mm -hmm. to this person doesn't care about me as their partner or me as their parent or me as their sibling. And they can take it really personally. You know, I've had teenagers tell me before that when they've gone to their parents to tell them that they were feeling suicidal, that the parent says, how could you feel that way? You don't know what that means. You don't really feel that way. Or, or I guess that just means that I'm a bad parent. And it's an immediate shame. It's a shit, like we go into this shameful response of, wow, I'm really in trouble for feeling this way. Or I, maybe I don't feel this way. And it just pushes the emotions farther and farther down. Yeah, I see that all the time in the work that I do. Um, myself and my co-founder, we volunteer every week at the um, child psychiatric ward. And we see a lot of, um, you know, we talk to a lot of kids and the biggest thing that they always say is that their parents don't understand or their parents will, um, you know, kind of, judge it in the way of being like well back in my day we had it so much worse you've got nothing to complain about and um you know that's the kind of thing that meant that they were struggling with this for a lot longer before they even talked to you because they were afraid that this was the response you were going to have um and for parents to understand that when a kid says that they are struggling with suicidal thoughts that does not mean you are a bad parent and i think a lot of parents are like well that must mean i've done something wrong but this world is filled with crazy things. There's a whole social media realm that parents don't even understand. Um, and so being willing to, you know, attempt to be like, okay, I don't know why you're feeling like this, but I will, I will help you go and see the doctor or we'll get you into a therapist and things like that. Otherwise kids are talking to me and you on social media and not to their own parents. Exactly. It's such a, it's, you know, well, social media is its own thing. We've created a different language. We've created a different, it's a different world. And we've actually, you know, one thing I love about social media, 
usually, I mean, primarily I say what I like most about TikTok is the authenticity and the vulnerability that, that I've seen in mental health videos that people make about their depression, about their suicidality, their anxiety, their traumas. The younger generations and the kids who are saying that they really feel this way, that they really feel this way, they really feel that way. You know, when they're expressing the way that they feel, it's as if they could diagnose themselves if they knew what, you know, if they knew how to describe their symptoms. They are basically saying that they have these disorders that as a therapist, therapy, you know, for me, when I see the videos, I'm like, yeah, well, this person probably does, you know, have generalized anxiety disorder. It really does seem like this person is suicidal. But I feel like if they were to express what they were expressing in the videos to their parents, they would have that exact reaction. Why are you even talking about this? You don't know what anxiety is. I have anxiety. You don't have anxiety. And that'll just continue to push it down farther. And suicidality is one of the most lethal emotions that you can have. And to act like they don't act like those emotions aren't real and don't exist and don't have substance is what creates people wanting to numb out even more. So I, yeah. I, I, I was watching your, I was watching your film a few weeks ago and there was this one sentence that you said in it. And I was like, I have to talk to her about this. And you, you were talking about why people don't understand suicidality or can't respond to suicidality or can't help suicidality. And it's, you said, some people respond negatively to it because they're either bitter because they lost someone to suicide or they've never experienced the feeling of suicidality so they can't comprehend how it really feels and that brought up the question that i wanted to ask you is how do you feel like people's unconscious beliefs or thoughts or perspectives contribute to a barrier of i don't want to understand it i don't understand it you know how do you like i guess my question is have you noticed any patterns in people who resist either the acceptance that suicidality is a thing, either in their family member or in public in general? Like, what do you think it is? I think that there is just a lot of fear. Um, and I think that it comes down to, in a way, us trying to guard our hearts. Like we, um, I was talking to a friend last night about how I was walking down a main road and I saw all of these homeless men that were sitting down there and I don't feel the way that I did the very first time I saw them um, because we we can't we we can't live in that pain we can't live in that you know oh man look at these people and if I was so overwhelmed every time that I saw them it would crush me but I was like how inhumane of it is it is it of me to just avoid even looking at them in the eye in order to keep myself comfortable um, and I think that when it comes to, to suicidality, um, it's a similar thing where people most definitely who don't understand, um, they, they don't want it, it's too uncomfortable to talk about and they would prefer to live in the reality of that not affecting them because that's a lot safer than having to open yourself up and look at the people walking down the street or to look at your family members. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think that's been a big thing that I have seen, but I also think that there is a huge generational gap where our parents' generation grew up with the, you know, going into war and the, um, you don't talk about things, the men of the family have to provide and talking about feelings is weak and we hide everything because of the shame and we've come out obviously completely opposite wanting to talk about everything um and so it's gonna take them a while to catch up like this is so foreign to them this is so disconnected we really are 
speaking another language. Like you said, TikTok has created another language um, and we're speaking this other language that our parents and the older generation, they have no idea. And so the easiest thing is to shut off because they don't understand it. Um, and so I think, yeah, that's that's probably my my perception of what I've seen. Um, and also they're used to being, you know, loony kind of thing. All of the big asylums where they kind of, you know, locked you up and put you in straitjackets and stuff only closed like 30, 40 years ago. Um, and so the loony kind of, you know, thing is still very much of that generation. It's going to take a while to break that. It absolutely is. And fear, you know, fear is exactly the thing that prevents us from moving forward. It in so many ways, not even with suicidality, literally with every area of our human existence, it's the fear to accept the things that we need to look at. And the more we don't look at them, the more that they grow, the more people lose their lives, the more pain and the more suffering that there is in the world. I completely agree with you. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you know this, but um, New Zealand, where I am, actually has the highest youth suicide statistics in the world. Um, which everyone finds really confusing because we're known as the most beautiful, green, clean, got Jacinda Ardern as our, our Prime Minister. Like everyone thinks New Zealand's incredible, but we've been battling this demon dog for so long that we've, yeah, we've got the highest youth suicide stats in the world. So our generation has seen that significantly where we're trying to tell our parents, we need to talk about this. Right. Um, but that's where our government invests two years ago, $1.9 billion into mental health because we made so, Gen Z and millennials made so much noise about it. I love the, to hear that the, you know, the advocacy of the generation that's being affected, you know, that reminds me of, you said that in the film as well. You said like, we are the ones that are suffering. So we're the ones that are gonna have to do something about it. And that's the thing is I'm glad that we're accepting you know, my generation, your generation and younger, we're accepting that we have to be the change that we want to see in the world, like that quote we hear from even when we're really young. But at the same time, it can also be disheartening that we don't have this infrastructure already set up for us as children, as adolescents, as teenagers, as young adults to say, we understand you, we've thought about you decades ago to prepare for the struggles that you were going to have in life. And you know, I see that with my clients that are having difficulties with their parents. It's like, we accept that we have to deal with our own struggles, but we miss and experience loss and grief over the fact that we aren't going to have the support system that we always wanted or that the government isn't there to support us. And so it can also feel isolating, you know, mm. hard. What I found with that is that you know, it, it's really hard not having these infrastructures and that this is really only important issue now. And I think to to give a tiny bit of grace, I guess, to the, um, you know, our parents and, and older generation of that, the, the older generation, they were also setting things up for us like um, segregation issues. And, you know, they fought literally those kinds of things so that we could live in this mixed world. And while there's still so much going on, that was a battle that they fought. And here in New Zealand, we um, were the first country ever to allow women to vote. Uh, and so I, I found myself for a long time getting really angry about the fact that they didn't prioritize our mental health. And it's no excuse that they haven't. But I also think we've realized this is now our battle. And at the time, their biggest battle was those things that they stood up for and that they fought and they changed the world that we live in now. Um, and now, so we kind of, you know, we can sit here and we can be really angry at them for it. But 
they were fighting a different battle um, and now we're the ones who have you know suffered from mental health wise but we can now be the ones to fight that battle for the younger generation and they will look at us and go wow we don't have to live in a world like they did just like we don't with what our parents did that is absolutely beautiful i have I, I feel like all of the young women men non-binary individuals who hear you say that their parents and their society and their government fought a different type of struggle is going to help them a lot I feel like it's going to help them a lot because not only is it going to allow them to feel comforted and protected in a way that they may not have in the past, but that they also can feel ready, like prepared that this is their time, that this is the difference that they're going to make not only in their own lives, but in the lives of their children and that we're going to make in, in our lives today and in all of the future generations to come. That's so beautiful. Thank you. For I that. think it's just so hopeful. I've actually not thought about it until I was talking to you today. Um, but I just think it's it's such a hopeful way to look at it because I myself have found myself, you know, bagging the baby boomers and the boomers and being so angry. But man, they, they changed the world that we live in. And that yeah. gives me hope that we can do the same thing. Right. Completely. For me as a therapist, I, I really, you know, my goal as a therapist, my goal with this podcast is to help people become more conscious, to help them understand that there's a lot going on in our minds that we don't understand. We're not taught about consciousness and unconsciousness. We're really only taught how to push things down into our unconscious unconsciously. And we're only really taught to consciously be aware, mainly the brain works where we pay the most attention to things that could harm us or things that can prevent us from being harmed like we have been harmed before in the past. And a lot of the times it's thoughts and feelings where it makes you isolate and it makes you not get into relationships and it makes you feel negatively about yourself because you don't have any other way of reconciling how and why your life has been the way that it has been. So I wanna ask you, you know, we've talked about the way you think the unconscious shows up in suicidality, the way that you think it shows up in, in the lack of people to understand suicidality and how it sort of shows up, how your unconscious has shown up throughout your own mental health journey throughout your life. When it comes to consciousness, what does that mean to you? And in what ways do you engage in consciousness in your life today? I, I have a story that will hopefully help illustrate this for me now. Um, I just thought of it when you were asking that question. Um, I had always had this response um, that I didn't kind of know that I had where if I did something wrong, the smallest thing wrong, I would be like, everyone is going to leave me. And I would respond, I would freak out, I would push people away. Um, and I remember one day, I was um, stage managing this massive event at this big arena and the people that were on stage were my friends and I sent them on like 10 seconds too early and I freaked out and was like, they're going to hate me. They're never going to talk to me again. And I stopped in that moment and I went, hang on a second. Where is this come from? Why am I having this response? And I have been having this response for my whole life. What is going on? And 
So that night I went and sat in my car and I just began to kind of ponder on that and go, that's not a normal response. Where has that come from? And I, I suddenly remembered a, a moment when I was three years old uh, where I had wet the bed and my dad had come in and he was really angry. Um, and then the next day he walked out of my life and I never saw him again. So my little three-year-old brain had gone, if I do anything wrong, he's gone because I've wet the bed. So if I do anything wrong, people are going to get mad and people are going to leave me. And I had taken this unconsciously throughout my entire life, being walking on eggshells, really being so afraid that I'm going to do something wrong and people are going to leave me, which meant that people never got close because I feared that. I always was guarded and ready for people to, to leave and would act out if I felt like they might leave so that I can leave first. And all of that had come from this little three-year-old girl who watched her dad leave and thought that it was her fault. Um, and I've become a lot more aware of that now um, and kind of learning how to bring these unconscious responses into my conscience um, and you know moments i actually wrote about one in my book where i was with a group of friends three of them to be exact um at a park and they were laughing and for some reason i was like oh my gosh they hate me and these are like my closest friends right and i was like they hate me oh my goodness um and then again i was like oh that was not a normal response why did i suddenly think that they hated me and again i was able to identify it back to a moment where i was seven years old and these three kids were being really mean to me and um so there's yeah i i've becoming maybe only over the last two years a lot more aware of oh where did that response come from oh that maybe it's not nothing to do with me and it the world you know doesn't revolve around me and say so have something else going on so i think my relationship with it has got so much better now that i'm becoming more aware of my responses and behaviors and relationships with people um sorry i'm gonna rant just a tiny bit more oh, um, <laughs> the, the other one that i've noticed and i think i only want to speak to this because i know that it's very very common um yeah. is the fear of abandonment was something that unconsciously I had and probably still have um, for so many years where I just unconsciously believed that everyone was going to leave me. And so people, there was these people who became like my parents. Um, I was doing Christmases with them, birthdays with them. They never once gave me a reason to think that they were gonna leave. But as soon as I had the tiniest inkling, I would stop responding to them or I'd get really short with them or I would just you know, go away for two weeks and not talk to them. And they were always like, what are you doing? Um, but it was that unconscious fear of, of being abandoned that developed these, you know, these kind of guarded relationships that I had, which they kind of, once they were, I was able to articulate that was what I was feeling with them. They went out of their way to kind of, when they felt I was doing that to be like, Hey, just so you know, we're still here. We're not leaving you. Um, yeah. There's so much that you just said there that I would, I could unpack for like a lifetime. I feel <laughs> being a therapist, it's like, it's like it's, I feel joy, you know, hearing that, just hearing that you're, that you have the capability, just being a human being, that you have the capability of pausing, becoming curious and saying, this doesn't seem to fit the moment, you know, challenging what's going on in your head versus what's really going on in your life. And, and then taking it a step further to not only absorb what's in your unconscious, bringing it to your consciousness, but then sharing it 
You know, if you're a public speaker and you, you put yourself out there and that's one thing. And then in the beginning of the journey, it's how do you express what you what you've been unconsciously hiding to protect yourself in one way or another for the first time to people how do you say this is this is these are my three main core negative beliefs that contributed to my suicidality and maybe that's not you know your exact situation but i want you to know them because it's part of my story and it's part of why i do the things that i do and it's not feeling that shame to say this is me this is what goes on in my head what is that like? How did you get to start off with that? <laughs> um, I think that first of all, it was trust. Um, I had to build up, you know, a, a significant level of trust with the people that I did choose to do this with. Um, and I, I remember one of the first times, um, which was actually more so in my recovery side, was when um, my the guy who had become like my adopted dad had said something to me about oh, is that a response from teenage jazz? Mm. And I got really hurt by that and really cut by that. And I remember like he saw my face just kind of drop and I ended up maybe three, four hours later building up the courage to go and talk to him. And I said, the, the fear of being seen as the person that I once was and for you to still think that that's who I am breaks me. Like for, you know, because I did, I really struggled to accept that person I really didn't like her and the things that she had done you saying that I'm still that person or suggesting that I'm still that person um, it, it's it's shattered me um, and he began to realize that in you know the ways that I was responding to things and the way that I needed to um, be you know if it was tough love that it wasn't to necessarily do with my past that I was a different I was still the same person but I had grown out of these beliefs was really important but they also were significant in the abandonment one that I was telling you about the fear of abandonment um and I remember the moment that I told them um it had actually come because I had had a dream which I guess was the unconscious telling me um <laughs> that I had gone to their house in the middle of a night and um, something terrible had happened. I don't know what it was. I was crying and I knocked on their door and he answered the door in his dressing gown and he got really angry at me and threw me against the fence um, and then was said, don't ever come back here and went inside. And I woke up and was like, what the heck was that? Like, what the? Um, and I, I made the decision to tell um, his wife about this dream that I had had. And she said, Jazz, do you think that your mind is trying to tell you that you're scared of us leaving you, um, that you're scared of us turning you away? And I just broke down and I was like, yeah, I think I am. And I didn't realize that that was how I was feeling, but they picked it up first. And I think sometimes that can be what happens is that other people around you can see these responses before you even become aware of them. Mm -hmm. um, but we were then able to talk about this response that I had and this feeling that I had that just kind of waiting for them to leave. And it was a really good conversation. So those, those things kind of, I guess, don't overly answer your question because they came from other people. Um, but it, it all comes down to trust, I guess. And, you know, writing it out is also a good thing. I think the first time my friends knew about the situation in the park where I thought that they hated me was when they read my book because it's in there. Um, and they were like, oh my gosh, we didn't know that's how you were feeling. If we knew, then we would respond differently. And I think that's how most people would respond if we knew. So don't be afraid to tell people. 
Yeah, I think trust, well, one, thank you so much for sharing all of that. And you're, you're right, it really is trust. As, as a therapist, people will come in and they will say, I don't trust anyone, but, they're, but they trust me enough to tell me that they don't trust anyone right off the bat. And what comes up for me whenever that happens is that the people in our lives, we're all, everyone's so busy in their own head. And we don't, we don't realize that, you know, studies show that 60% of people have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. 60% of people. And that's only a 10 different child adverse childhood experiences. There's so many that weren't on the study that I'm referencing, but we forget that everyone's carrying something and we don't, I, I think, I don't think it's intentional, but we don't really create environments that feel trustworthy to express our emotions and express how we feel. And for some reason, well, the field of therapy is, you know, the intention is to allow vulnerability and authenticity, but someone can walk into a therapy room because it, it, it's neutral. It's not even that it's positive. It's just simply that it's neutral. It's that there's nothing negative in the environment. And so that immediately allows trust. So what has come up for you when you're, when you, if, if you have, I'm sure you have. And so when you are working with families of someone that's experiencing mental health issues, what suggestions do you have to create an environment where people can begin to discuss what's going on for them unconsciously or secretly? Um, yeah, I definitely have uh, this experience a lot with with families um, and young people who are struggling that want to be able to have this conversation. And I like to kind of begin um, this this conversation by telling at the very forefront the parents, um, this is not your fault. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do that because immediately it brings the guards down because as soon as it, it you know someone is, is struggling and they say that they say that parents immediately get on guard like we've already talked about going but I've, I've done this for you and I've done that for you and you shouldn't have all of this so kind of going this this isn't your fault this is just a something that that your child is dealing with um, and then giving them the space to speak openly before you say anything um, which is often really hard for parents and family members but I find that if we can actually intentionally create the space where either you the person struggling says or someone who's helping them says um, I'm like let them talk now and say everything that they want to say without you intervening means that they feel like they can get the whole story out without being cut off and then never get to the rest of it because there's all these kind of you know judgments and things that are already put on them um, so I will often do that and if someone tries to jump in I let them finish, let them keep talking. Um, and it's been, it's been really good. I think that one of the biggest things that, that parents want to be assured of is that this isn't completely their fault. And it's the biggest fear that I've constantly seen. Just on Sunday, I was speaking at an event and this 15 year old girl came up to me bawling her eyes out. And so I was hugging her and I looked up and I saw her mum standing there and her mum was just sobbing. And I was like, oh, okay, what's going on? So I went over to the mum and, and hugged her. And then her mum just said, I'm so sorry. My daughter's tried to take her life three times this year and I don't know what I've done wrong. Um, and I, I don't know what I can do, like, what have I done to her? And I just held her and I said, it's not your fault. 
it's not your fault. The fact that your daughter has already been able to tell you that she's feeling like this is everything because so many kids don't. Um, and now it's really important that you take the time to listen. You might not understand and you don't have to understand. We're not asking you to understand, but we're asking you to listen and we're asking you to be empathetic um, and then to to do something about it, whether, you know, if they ask for therapy, do not shut them down. It's the same thing as shutting your, your kid down who says, hey, can I go to the doctor? I think I've broken my arm. Nah, you don't need it. Right. It's the same thing. Right. It really is. Um, yeah. And we see it all the time. Like, no, you don't need therapy. Would you say that if I, you know, thought that there was something physical wrong with me, you don't need a doctor? It's the same thing. Your brain is an organ. It needs right. help. Um, use that line if you need to, to you know, yeah. tell someone that you're struggling. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. I think people are afraid. You know, people are afraid of the mind. Like the body is so much easier explained than the mind. And we seem to take our loved ones or anyone else's mental health struggles, we take it personal. We really take it personal. And I think it's easier to take something personal that you don't understand than something that you really do understand because it's an ego defense. It's like we want to, and it's not even, sometimes it's really not a choice. Like even with these parents or these family members, it's like they may not even be actively deciding to be like, no, I'm not going to deal with this. It's their own stuff. They don't even realize that they're defending against their own fears when it comes to, you know, stopping the conversation or saying that the person doesn't know what they're talking about. And it's just, it's really, it's all fear. You know, suicidality is fear of nothing ever changing and fear of, you know, not wanting to address suicidality is the fear of it being real. And what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for the world? And, and how can we possibly answer the question of why did we get and how did we get to where we are today without, without releasing that fear? And we have to look at what we don't want to look at. And that, that goes from the micro level, each person that's experiencing this and the macro level on a governmental level. Why is this happening and how can we help it? And also like just thinking about um, the, when it comes to, to friends and family that um, are having these conversations, that is probably one of the only places where these people aren't gonna be, uh, where their clinical diagnosis isn't gonna stick with them for the rest of their lives. And even just um, this morning, I. I've had a bit of a, a physical medical mishap um, recently that has literally nothing to do with mental health whatsoever. And I haven't been to the hospital in like five years. So since I last attempted to take my own life um, and this was totally unrelated and I just got my discharge letter um, and the very first big thing in bold that pops up is borderline personality disorder, which they then use to discredit the story, not realizing that I had worked through that, that people were like, oh, actually you had symptoms of PTSD and you had symptoms of BPD, but we didn't know and they didn't know this history. But automatically this person is going to be struggling with you know these labels and in, in every area that they go into they don't need it from friends and family um and yeah and i mean i was i read it and i was like what the heck what does this have to do with the fact that i went blind in one eye for like two hours when i was speaking and i was like what does this have to do with this but automatically because i've experienced this i've been labeled as it um from from professionals who don't know my journey your friends and family you do know the journey and that's the one place that they can go without being labeled and to have those open conversations obviously in a therapist's office um but that's why friends and family connection is so important yeah it's so important you know, there's pillars of the things that we need as humans. You know, we need 
shelter and food and water and and we need job security so we can keep those things that I just mentioned on the table and in our own household. But the next thing that we need is love and belonging. And we need to feel like someone loves us enough to listen. Someone loves us enough to look at their own unconscious and see how that may be affecting me and be willing to have me share my unconscious and how that can be affecting me or them. We have to start having these conversations. And that's why when I first found you on TikTok and then researching everything that you do, I was like, I have to bring you on here because people need, you know, people are proud of people that overcome anxiety, that overcome substance use, that overcome depression. And, and suicidality is really like, it's like the apex of all of those things happening in one person with no sight for a better future. And to overcome that and become an advocate and to put out so much material and to use your voice to send out so many messages to people that you can feel as low as anyone can imagine or experience and, and come out of that and start to fight for your life and start to fight against everything that's in the unconscious, everything that you didn't have a choice over being placed in there. You have a choice to bring your consciousness into your unconscious and say, I'm ready to fight. I want to do more than survive. And it starts with looking in, pulling up the rug and going, okay, this is everything I've been running from. This is what's in my unconscious. Let's go. I love that. I'm, I'm so very, very thankful to be in the position to, to do this. Um, and, you know, I often say it's people ask why, why we would, you know, put ourselves out there on social media or why I would choose to relive this stuff every day. But for me, when I was sitting in that psychiatric ward, believing that the world was better off without me, I spent so long just trying to research anyone that had been through this and got through it, anything that I could find, any story, and I couldn't find anything. And there was nothing like that to make me feel like I was the only one dealing with this and I was completely alone. And so for me, as long as there is someone sitting there that is still struggling, I've will never stop because I know what it's like to feel hopeless and to feel like you're the only one going through it but as long as we keep sharing our stories and we keep talking and we keep working together like this we are providing evidence and proof that it can get better and I think that's one of the most important things it really is one of the most important things last thing for our audience is if there is anyone listening today that can relate to some of the things that you've shared have been in your unconscious if they have a similar unconscious to you what would be one message that you would want them to get out of this for them to carry with them and hopefully bring consciously into their unconscious the one thing that i want you to know is that your specifically for people that have dealt with suicidal tendencies or dealing with suicidal tendencies is that you're not fighting your suicidal tendencies you're fighting the beliefs that are putting you there and those i don't know what those beliefs are for you um, or how those beliefs are showing for you for me they were i'm a burden i'm unlovable i don't deserve to be here and like i've said you know through this podcast the the reasons as to why those beliefs were built up know that in the moments where um, you are struggling with these thoughts it's okay to step back and think actually why why am I feeling like this and then talk to someone about it because there's no way that I could combat those beliefs by myself it had to be you know with other people guiding me through it you're not alone 
at all and it's okay to ask for help and this current world crisis that we're in uh, it doesn't dampen your situation or make your situation any less valid or your feelings any less valid so reach out beautiful beautiful thank you so much jazz in order to close out this podcast my name is dr courtney tracy i am known on social media as the truth doctor and the truth is it is time to stop surviving and start fighting